gonna spend the rest of my life telling this story, ain't I? We know the dangers of one person using a Hello and welcome to this, the penultimate episode of Season 1 of At the Meadow. My name is Joseph Carver. This week, I sat down with Dr. Anindia Kundu. Dr. Kundu grew up outside of Portland, Oregon, went to the University of Chicago for his undergraduate degree before completing his PhD at New York University. His research builds on the work of Angela Duckworth and the concepts of grit. Dr. Kundu focuses on the concept of agency and how it impacts our students' successes. We're also excited to know that Dr. Kundu will be joining us here March 15th at the Meadows School to address our faculty. After meeting with our faculty, he will be meeting with a select group of faculty from schools from around the Las Vegas area. He's a successful author, a TED Talk presenter with over 2.5 million views of his TED Talks, an incredibly persuasive speaker, and father of new twins. I hope that you enjoy this episode of The Meadow. Here we go. So I had this, I had a, a, a laugh yesterday. We didn't have basketball practice and I was, um, I was driving home and thinking about this podcast and I was thinking about the introduction as being, um, you know, this long drawn out story that, you know, every once in a while you meet a young person who changes the way that you view the world, who is alters the very landscape that they're on. I was going to stretch it way out. And then I was going to say, and Dr. Anindya Kandu is married to just one of those people. <laughs> because we, I was wondering where you're, I knew it wasn't me. So, uh, well, I'm sure it is you, but that wouldn't be as funny. And uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't consider myself that, that young anymore. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I had, a, I thought, boy, that could be a really, that could be a really entertaining introduction. Uh, and Pam and would probably get a kick out of it. But, um, and I'm sure we've talked about this a bunch and hopefully we'll talk about it when you come out here, but I, um, you know, we, my family just thinks so highly of that family. I, I, I just think that they're, they're, they're really inspirational. And um, they kind of, at, when I was working out in the East, they, they gave me a lot of hope. You know, when you work with certain kids that you, you know, you, there's, there's kids you connect with and all of that, but then you, there, there are some students that you just, they just are oriented properly, like facing out to the world and like big hearted and all of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think you'd see that run an entire family. You know, it's like in my family, they would say, oh yeah, that's Julie, you know, yeah. but in, in that family, it's just from top to bottom and just, yeah, I think yeah. the world of them. And they're so, all so. unique. Uh, yeah, you could talk about them all I day. Bet. I bet. Uh, yeah, and now that you know, young young ladies and off changing the world and doing stuff. So it's yeah, pretty it's cool remarkable. to be a part of it. Well, listen, we're really excited um, to have you coming out. Thanks for accepting yeah. the invitation. For sure. Thank um, you for reaching out in advance. And, you know, the, the VIAs, all of them will be super excited to hear that I'm going to go to your school. So it's, it's yeah, great. we're. We're, we're thrilled about it. It's going to definitely be our, our, our signature in-service event. So we're, we're excited about it. So uh, normally we just pick up um, sort of naturally into the middle of um, Alex will fade in whatever our kind of pre-conversation is. Uh, and so I, but where we typically start our, our um, episodes at the Meadow is um, we invite, I, I tell people we invite superheroes to appear on the Meadow. And so we always start with um, origin stories as all superhero stories do. So I'd be interested to hear if you could tell me, uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time, I think, talking about your book and the work that you're doing now, sure. but there's this whole pre-story to that, that I'm so interested in. And, and part of it is, I think that it's unique to find somebody who early on um, finds themselves in an exceptional academic institution and is studying and makes the choice to to be so civically focused and to be so focused on improving the conditions of other people before sort of the idea of uh, individual success before any acclaim or any of those things. I think that's increasingly unusual. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, growing up, how you ended up at what schools uh, and then what sort of was the triggering moment for you to do the work that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, There's a lot there. And uh, as I kind of heard you, uh, 
ask the question, I, I don't know. I, I would say I kind of have naturally found myself uh, doing what I'm doing. It's just been a series of small decisions that have just led to this body of work, um, which I think is how life works for a lot of people. I, I you know, if I, if you asked me when I was 18, do I want to be some kind of lawyer making a lot of money or doing this kind of more academic public scholarship kind of thing? I, I don't know what I would have answered. I mean, I, I hmm. didn't even know there was like a career here, um, which, you know, if you're an academic, it's not exactly the most lucrative of careers sometimes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, going back, I, you know, I, uh, I wrote about this in the book a little bit. Most of my K through 12 experiences were in like cushy, nice suburban schools of Portland, Oregon. Um, about elementary school, I, I went to like a slightly rougher school. My, my dad was like more junior at Intel. Intel is like one of the main employers of uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, and then he started to climb and, and got, you know, um, more money and then moved us into the suburbs of Portland. And then I went to these really nice high schools. And I also had my own like developmental changes happening at that time. Like I was shy, kind of chubby, uh, very happy-go-lucky, um, but just very introverted. And it was a few teachers and their influences in my life. Like I remember giving this um, how-to speech in eighth grade and I did mine on how to procrastinate and get away with it. And the whole thing was like a joke. And then I said something like, oh, and these note cards are even blank. I don't know what I'm doing. And I threw them and it was this crazy moment where I just kind of like acted in a way that I have been wanting to, but then like my teacher loved it so much. She made me give the speech to my science class and my math class and everyone wanted to hear the speech. And so then I started doing speech and debate in high school and um, started really breaking out of my shell. And I went to like the largest public high school in Oregon, met a lot of kids there. By the end of it, I think I was like very friendly with most cliques and most different kinds of people. It was a very like TV show kind of high school. And I was uh, our class president. And so, you know, I, I had this idea that I wanted to do something related to other people. I was becoming more extroverted and I liked helping people um, and just meeting people. Um, can so I, can I, I ask before, yeah. before we move out of the high school, I, we've, yeah. had, we've had conversations about debate on this podcast a couple of times and it's not sure. um, unknown to people who listen um, that I was involved in debate for a long time. I'm curious, um, what was your experience? We, we consider it such an important thing. It's an important part of our culture here at the Meadow School. It's an important part of the culture I came from. What was your experience like? And what do you, what do you think that that gave you? Because obviously that was a signature moment that, that, that speech you gave for you. Yeah, so the eighth like grade speech. Possibilities. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the eighth grade speech made me realize like, hey, maybe I'm pretty good at this and I could try to join the club at high school. And then you go to the first meeting of the club and it's a very small group of kids and they're a little bit nerdy and weird and each have interesting, you know, interests. And, uh, you know, I fit right in. Um, and I, speech, like, is definitely probably the most formative thing I did um, until college, maybe even through today, uh, just in terms of like the wow. identity formation. And mm -hmm. it was that what in the club and at tournaments, I got to be a side of myself that I didn't anywhere else. Like, it was just like, get on stage or like, you know, perform in your little group uh, of classes that, you know, how it goes like pre rounds or whatever. Um, right. I did a lot of IEs and it was just like, what's that stage? I was just like a different person, but the person who I always knew that I could be, but it was mostly on the inside and got, had a lot of very success, like went to nationals a few times, got, got some state awards. And um, it, it was like the one place where I liked competing and just like, mm -hmm meeting people and it was really fun and just like so creative. Um, so I, I wish more kids would get to do that. And it was, you know, I, I eventually, you know, wanted to be cool too, but I didn't quit speech <laughs> until like senior year when I was too busy, but everybody in my high school knew that I was, I was doing it and they were all like, well, this, this guy's going to hopefully give our graduation speech and all this stuff. Like it became cooler. And so, you know, I'd love to just have all kinds of kids try it. Like things like Toastmasters. Like I just think, having to articulate your thoughts in front of other people and work through them is just a skill that we're, we should hone in on and not lose. Yeah. And, and, you know, during, you know, during the last two years, um, given that it's been so difficult to be able to host sporting events and the typical sort of, you know, 
speech and debate was one of those things that that really quickly was able to adapt and be available to kids. And so it allowed, you know, that that group of kids has continued to kind of be able to, to feed what their, you know, passion is while it, it's been sort of stops and starts and fits for things like, you know, basketball. Cause I, you know, we, yeah. I coach basketball too. And um, so I, I think, I think the same, I think the world of it. And I think it makes a huge difference in, in kids' lives. And you are just another person in my sort of long line of people who are like, did speech and debate and have gone on to lead extraordinary lives. And it, it's worth, you know, it's worth pointing out because it's such a great program. So Definitely. you finished school in Oregon and then you went to the university of Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's, That's right. I mean, that, that obviously fantastic school, amazing school, but, but sure. what put that school on your radar? What made you a, a university of Chicago guy? You know, this isn't a, a national forensics league advertisement, but you know, so, uh, <laughs> It was, it was probably speech and debate. Like when oh, I applied, wow. when I applied to university of Chicago, I think I was like the only kid from my high school who applied. Um, it was still known as like mostly where fun goes to die. Like, you know, people don't really know right. much about it, like a weird school, weird students. And it's weird, right? Like I had to make that choice of like where I was kind of, it sounds weird to say this, but I had become like popular in high school. And it was like, I had a full ride to go to university of Oregon's honors college. Um, hang out with the same kids that I went to school with, or I could kind of be more of that, like kind of weird kid with a lot of interesting interests by going to university of Chicago. And I didn't have like much, I didn't have like any money, but I just knew it was a good school. And I I think I I visited and I sat down in one humanities class and that was it. And I was just like, yeah, this feels, feels right. Like I have no idea what people are talking about, but this is like a really cool environment. Um, And then, you know, as life would have it, like after, the year after I joined, I think they like broke the top 10 and then kept climbing and then people know it for its research now, but it was definitely like a, like a bold choice at the time, which has, you know, most of my close friends and my, my wife and like so much of my life is like from university of Chicago. Although I would say I didn't gain any hard skills from the school. I don't know how to, how to make an Excel workbook because of University of Chicago. And it probably led me to be an academic because I wasn't sure what else I could even do with my life. But um, the social network that I, I gained like friends and family from, from it has been very valuable and like has changed my life. When you, when you arrived there, I feel like I've read that when you arrived there, you were on, at least in your mind, maybe a, a different career path that there was sort of a formative moment there uh, as an undergraduate that made you really start thinking about sociology can you first of all am I right did I make that up and if if I didn't can you tell us a little bit about it yeah sure um so I appreciate this the deep dive and feel free to edit it to make it more interesting but yeah I totally did think I was going to go to law school I was in this small major where you apply to it um, called law letters and society and they take a little cohort per year most of the kids go to law school it was like a little bit sociological too, like the history of the development of law in this country. Um, But then my sister moved to University of Chicago to go to law school the year after I graduated. And so I lived with her and a friend and I got to see her going to law school. And it was just like, wow, this looks terrible. Like, I do not want to do this at all. So there was that experience. And then there was the experience of having to do my undergraduate thesis, my own research. And I, I wrote, I like did a very small qualitative project about like um, this handgun ban that was being lifted. Um, so, you know, potentially more of a supply of handguns in and around, in, in and around surrounding school communities. And so that was what my, what my research was about. I interviewed some police officers, some teachers um, and asked them what they thought the effects of the handgun ban removal would be um, on school violence. And, you know, it was a pretty interesting paper, my first like, you know, empirical research, but I didn't have a job coming out of college. And um, that paper, I had my advisor who like kind of sent it to some other professors, one of which was a Harris school, which is the public policy school professor there, this huge, very well-known policy guy, his name's Jens Ludwig. Um, he, he liked it. He asked me if I wanted to join this research project that he had a huge grant for, um, which was to sit as like an intake person at the juvenile detention center, um, helping process youth and randomly assigning some to get cognitive behavioral therapy um, for this longitudinal academic study about the effects of CBT on recidivism. And I thought that was really cool, like what they were designing these research, but more I was kind of drawn to the the implications of like 
changing kids' lives that were at the detention center or the not like the potential of not doing that because it might be too late and just grappling with like the fact that all of these kids were black and brown coming from the same south and west sides of Chicago, like getting to see the inequality like in your face, but not having the tools to describe it. So I use that experience to apply to public policy school in New York. I went to NYU for my MPA. One year into it, I realized I wasn't getting as much education focused stuff as I wanted. And I also got to attend a lecture by Pedro Nagera, who was teaching at NYU at that time. And I talked to him after the class. And then long story short, I ended up applying to sociology of education PhD program. I got in, I had to leave my master's and my job at the Department of Education um, but that was like a really exciting decision, one of those decision moments um, that has kind of just kept my, like, I guess, career on this path of education research and um, achievement scholarship. Was uh, was uh, Pedro Nogueira an early inspiration for you, or did you find your way into that lecture uh, because you sought it out, or was he, um, did you sort of fortuitously stumble into yeah, no, it was a, it was a total, it was kind of a stumbling uh, serendipity moment because I didn't wow. know who he was. Like, even though everyone in New York at the time knew who he was, I was new yeah. to education, hadn't read stuff like that at the time, um, but just saw a flyer. And I was like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm really interested in the achievement gap. And this guy's a professor at NYU. So after work, literally after working at the DOE at like 6 p.m., I was like, okay, I'll go attend this evening lecture. And then, it, you know, he's just one of those people who you hear talk and really can change your perspective. And for me, Absolutely. like my, my career track. Wow. So <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a really sharp turn. And um, that must've been an incredible moment though. Like you said, it was exciting, but I imagine it was exhilarating because you were, it probably took some of the ambiguity out of what you were doing and said, right. now I know where right. I'm headed. Yeah. And I actually think I was thinking about applying to the program around the same time. And I saw he was a professor in the program. And so, you know, maybe a part of it is that I'm actually kind of good at networking, which feels weird to say, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to this lecture and introduce myself to this guy. And I was on the wait list at the time. And I don't think he had any pull over the program, but you know, I did get in and I was like, mm. now that I see what the professors are like in the program, I want to be a part of that. So as you started progressing academically and, and you, you've already said you, you were interested in the achievement gap um, and you're interested in the way, obviously the way that the system um, impacts the lives of, of people of color. Was there a moment for you where you looked back to your life and how you transitioned from sort of, you know, one level of public school to sort of the suburban ex experience that informed either like your passion or your curiosity about it? Because I imagine it changed the lens that you looked at your own experiences in school in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. The first thing I'll say is like, having gotten to interview and profile these exceptional students across, you know, urban centers that have transcended poverty and intergenerational inequality, like, you know, they're, they're black and brown, they're, they're clearly like, they have some kind of personality thing that also has like led them to lead the lives they have. And so in my interviews, I've always kind of felt like an insider, um, just able to connect with these people over the experience of, you know, being marginalized or minoritized in this country. Like, you know, my name's Anindya Kundu. I've had to kind of tell people how to pronounce that my whole life and just like, have always felt a little bit like an outsider. So like that has always like informed my perspective on, on my work. Like, even though I went to these cushy high schools and I don't have a better adjective to sure. describe them, I, you know, didn't always feel like an insider until, you know, now that we've talked a lot about my life, like until I kind of learned to play the game and code switch and like, you know, do all of that stuff. Um, and so it, it, it is, you know, it's always important in, in my work like that. It's disheartening that not every student gets the opportunity to do that, but also like there's a broader structural conversation there about agency, like how much of our identities that we portray are we in charge of, or are we just conforming to a dominant culture and the expectations of, of that. Um, and those are the kinds of things that you don't necessarily talk about over coffee, but with my, <laughs> right. with my research participants, I definitely have. So do you think, so agency is obviously the focus of, um, of your book and a lot of the work, um, that you've done, 
um, up to this point. But before, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but before your book was actually published, you had some highly trafficked TED Talk videos, um, and one of one one of which was on agency, right? What was the first TED Talk video that you did? Yeah, that talk was on agency. Um, it's called like the boost that students need to succeed, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, 2017, I gave the talk as a part of this um, special cohort um, that TED was running called the TED Residency Program. And because I had a body of work where I was problematizing grit and trying to expand on the grit narrative, like in op-eds and just like mm -hmm some research articles and Angela Duckworth had already decided to join my dissertation committee. So I had, had something to show. That's how I got accepted into the program. And that talk is basically about how grit is not enough. And Angela Duckworth, who is a mentor of mine, like, you know, she contests that as well, but it's like, it wasn't up to her that her research got co-opted in this extent that it did. Um, and so, yeah, I, so, but to go back to your question, agency was the uh, topic of my dissertation, uh, more or less, even before the book. And I've always tried to find ways to connect research to people who could ideally use it. It will inform their work, especially in education. And so, you know, that's why I wrote the op-eds. That's why I was like, oh, this TED residency program sounds cool. And I've kind of had a black sheep, like academic career so far because of that sort of stuff. So let me ask because you know i'm there there's a certain measure of it's it, i guess it's for for people outside of of what we do the idea of academic celebrity probably seems a little bit strange but i have to imagine that you are stunned a little yourself at the number of views that your that your ted talk has received i mean it's i i don't want to guess and i, I don't want to put you on the spot but but can you like ballpark how many views has that ted talk received I definitely probably check it like once a month or so. And <laughs> then uh, I'll Google myself, you know, I am an older millennial. Um, <laughs> and I did, I did say yes to the TED program, ideally hoping that it would be a platform like that. And then I got to yeah. do it again um, because they thought I'd be a good mentor for the new cohort. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah. So I think they each have about two and a half million views. Um, and that's it's incredible. Been, it's been pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's there's a very uh time timely manner like basically today i realized the contact form on my website has been broken for like a year oh, um, no. but i was yeah i know it's not, not i'm glad great. i knew how to reach you another way yeah i appreciate that and I, I had to convince myself that anybody who actually wanted to reach me still could find a way to do it <laughs> um but that was a bit of a bummer but honestly i have it like that was working for the first talk. And like, what happens is like the first month after something like that goes live, you get a lot of reach outs. A lot of people who are like, I have a story like this, mm. or, Hey, can I talk to you? Like people who are like wanting to ask you how maybe they could also improve their lives or get agency in their lives. And it's like a lot of curiosity, but then it sort of fades, but it's interesting. Like in the world that we live in now, like that will always be on my online CV. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't, it hasn't been that surprising. It hasn't been that overwhelming, luckily. Um, and I'm actually ideating my second book. Um, so I'll quickly digress and tell you about that for a second. Like um, my second book is going to be on like educational leadership broadly, what that looks like for students, parents, teachers, and, and various thought leaders. And the idea from that book came because a woman reached out to me on my website after seeing my second TED talk and wanting to tell the story about how her two daughters, black daughters in Indianapolis, um, basically were just like not allowed to enter this honors program, which was all white, even though these girls were exceptional readers and this mom's advocacy to get her daughters into the program and what that means for her community. And I started thinking about how that's a form of leadership and she's going to be a participant in my next book where I'm profiling these leadership stories. Um, so, you know, with, with the charge or with the platform has come some really awesome ideas and opportunities mm -hmm. and connecting with people and, uh, being a very like people oriented person. It's, it's been, it's been fun. Yeah. I mean, it's been as a, as an outsider, um, and someone who's just sort of followed you since, 
I guess you completed your your undergraduate degree. It's been it's just been so much fun to see the growth and um, from the side and and so I'm 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 thrilled that you're seeing that success, and especially Thank with you. such a valuable valuable message. I want to get to um, a conversation about agency for our listeners so that they really understand sure. what you mean. But when you're talking about that, but before we do, I, I also want to talk about something I think that's important that that doesn't happen necessarily in all facets of society now. You talked a little bit about Angela Duckworth um, and her work uh, on grit. And in many ways, your book is um, a challenge to the work, not not as a, an attack, but rather a, um, a supplement or a more expansive view of um, the risk that overdefining and narrowing grit can present, the idea that we can um, that we can just sort of bootstrap our way to tremendous success. It's just a matter of our willingness to, to get up early enough in the morning and stay up late enough at night. Um, and your book is a response to that, um, which in some facets of society, someone might take that as a challenge um, to their intellect, to their work, to any of those things. But, but she was on your dissertation committee and is a huge supporter and advocate of your work. Um, can you just talk a little bit, one, about uh, that relationship, but also what's unique about the way that academia welcomes that sort of iterative approach to defining things like grit and agency. Right. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'll say is that, yeah, she's a very close mentor of mine. I would say maybe my closest mentor because she's very nice and she has no time, but once in a while she'll make some time for me because, you know, I kind of got to become friends with her even when her career was like on this rise and it's just mm -hmm. kept, kept, you know, her shooting star has just kept going. Um, and it's cool, cool to be in her network. Um, I'll, I'll just tell the story. I, I hope that answer your question. So, sure. you know, I, um, I, I was putting off my own research by writing these op-eds and like engaging with public discourse and grit was like the, uh, you know, word du jour in like 2015 or something like that. And Angela's Ted talk had blown up. Um, and Pedro and I, we were like co-teaching an undergrad class, or maybe I was his TA, but I eventually took over his classes. And one lecture, he was kind of talking about this idea of grit and how it just, completely washes over structural issues that we had been talking about um, the whole semester so far. And, and we eventually had this discussion about how a more apt term would be agency because it'll be more context specific um, to the realities of young people um, and structural obstacles that they face. I, that was like a conversation that stuck in my brain to the point where I had to write it down. I wrote it in an op-ed form and I sent it to Pedro and I was like, Hey, like, do you think there's something here? And, you know, a lot of the time he was always just like, work on your research, like stop writing op-eds. But for this one, he was like, this is pretty great. I'm getting on a flight. I'll chime in. Like, I'll let's, let's work this. And so we wrote an op-ed together, which was published on msnbc.com in 2015, I think, um, called, uh, I think it's why students need more than grit. And it was like one of the main, like critiques of grit right when Angela's work was like super, super taking off um, to the point where I think it came across her radar also. And I was also looking for a third dissertation committee person at the time. Um, there was an NYU professor who had to leave my committee um, and I had to replace them. And my other committee member is just how networks work was like, Hey, I went to undergrad with Angela Duckworth. Um, why don't you just reach out to her directly? Like, I know your work is like expanding on this notion. Let's see what she says. So I emailed Angela and I was like, Hey, like, I'm really interested in your work. I think, you know, some of this stuff like is not a full picture. I'm wondering what kind of research might exist in the intersection of sociology and psychology. And, you know, she, she's very busy and she always writes one sentence emails back. And she was like, sure, I'm going to be on the train at five o'clock tomorrow. If you want to call me then PS, I don't think poverty doesn't matter. <laughs> and uh, I always think that's hilarious because I was like very <laughs> like a nervous 27 or eight year old, like 
this woman, like, you know, it's a big deal. I was wondering if she was going to like brandish me on the phone or like you know, <laughs> get very upset with me, but we had a lovely conversation um, just about kids thriving and, and perspectives that are important. And I told her a little bit about my research and afterwards I emailed her. I was like, Hey, I should have just asked you, but I chickened out like any chance you'd be on my committee. I think it was just also luck. Like she was like, I'm not taking any more students right now, but I enjoyed our conversation a lot. You're very nice. I'll do it for you. And I know since then she like really is no longer on dissertation committees, but I feel like I just got in. Um, And she's really helped um, develop my thinking too, which is why I think of myself as a little bit like a sociologist, psychologist. Like I think about the structures and the cultures that eventually translate to individual level behavioral character outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, where she kind of does the opposite thing. Um, and so it's been a really great, fruitful collaboration, conversation, relationship. I don't think that's characteristic of academia on a whole. I think people do take it as an affront sometimes if you're going to confront their work or critique it or expand it. Um, but it's nice to know that there's a lot of us out there who, for the sake of benefiting children's lives, are excited to converse and collaborate. Yeah, for me... Uh, you know, and obviously I'd read Grit, but for me, the finding out that she was so actively involved in your work and also as vocal supportive of it almost reinvested me in what she had written because it just suggested to me someone who's who was working for the right purpose. It wasn't right. about sort of an academic pride issue. It was really about the work, which was so, I mean, it's refreshing. I mean, maybe we're all, we all are looking for those glimpses where people work well together because it's not as obvious these days but I thought that that was such a cool um and also it's interesting to note that your career has been these intersections with the people that are really the thought leaders in the field that you've chosen have Mm -hmm. just been beyond fortuitous right the other thing though agency related I suppose is that you put yourself in those positions Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. you went to that you went to that you know, to that talk that night that, that Pedro right. was giving and you called and asked, you know, for you, you did those things. You took your part um, in making it happen, which is, I think, a lesson for, for students too. Um, but that's remarkable. It's remarkable that it's worked out the way it has. I want, I, I want to get to the work um, because, and, and, and for, for, for those that are listening, um, Dr. Kundu is going to be, he's going to be here, uh, at the Meadows school in March addressing our faculty and then, uh, addressing a group of guest faculty from other schools in the area. Um, and we're super excited about that. And when we spoke about what the topic was going to be, I, my feeling was that I want, um, the same lens that you turned towards grit. I think independent schools really, um, benefit. From, from that perspective, because I think that especially in independent schools, there's been um, a narrative of, you know, if you do the work, you'll get, you know, you'll get your just rewards. Um, but in the last 15, 20 years, the profiles of independent schools have changed dramatically. The, what the students look like that walk the halls of independent schools have changed dramatically. And so I think that what grit can and can't do has changed dramatically. And we're still grappling to deal with that. And you explain some of that under the, um, the arc of, of agency. So can you explain what that means for a listener that hasn't had an opportunity to read your book yet um, or, 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 or anyone who's, who's maybe not in the um, educational field? Sure. And I'm very excited to, to visit and get to expand on this conversation. Um, so to start, the, the first thing, thing about grit, again, you know, psychological concept um, translates into outwardly visible behavior and then sometimes outcomes. Like you stick to one goal day in and day out, you'll reap rewards over the long term. I think it's very psychologically valid, this concept. Um, Angela, you know, has decades of of research that's validated her her measures. Um, But at the end of the day, we also have to just take a step back and think about the fact that grit is a psychological concept that is potentially a character trait. Um, Because to me, as a sociologist, that's, that's the product. Like grit is something that comes at the end of something else and that mm. something else is this these environments these conditions opportunities relationships 
things that make learning fun and vibrant and help students kind of find their identity and find what they are interested in, those to me are parts of the equation that eventually has grit at the end of it. Because how how on earth are you supposed to know what to be gritty about if you don't have like a strong sense of self or a desire to try a bunch of interests to see which one to stick with. Um, and so that's where I think agency comes into play because it really individualizes life and like the zest for learning at a level that grit misses because grit just isn't that context specific. You know, if I haven't had my morning coffee, I might be a little less gritty about working on my second book than if I have. But the agency perspective is that I'm very interested in writing the second book because it's aligned to my identity and my desires to improve my community. And so I think if we can kind of start to bring those conversations back into education, the, you know, the sky is the limit because the agency perspective is a social one. And, you know, I'll define agency when I'm there, but in general agency, the book definition is, um, it's like a person's like ability to change their context for the better, but also through leveraging resources to create a positive change. But that goes for teachers, that goes for mentors, that goes for parents, everyone, you know, like, um, agency is contagious. And so, um, we want our teachers to be able to teach to their agency, teach to their interests, and that becomes contagious to the students who are who are the learners. Um, and if parents are, you know, also very engaged and um, kind of parenting with a high agency lens, then I think that also translates to um, their kids as well, which is why the book is written in this way where I talk about home influences, school influences, and then I kind of bring it back to the, the individual person level. So let's let's zero in on the the school influence on agency. Mm-hmm. I know that this is sort of um, a way of saying break down your book into fifteen words for me. But but uh, sure. but I'm not afraid of giving you the challenge. That what what is a what is a school that is doing a good job activating student agency? What does that look like? So you know, because we're, this is more of an informal conversation. For me, what that's looking like now is a school that helps a student find the relevance of what they're learning in their lives, which I I said, I don't even know if I like explicitly say that, say it like that in the book, um, because I have like more of a academic through line and a conceptual framework. But that to me is like when education is, is firing on all cylinders is like when a kid obviously shows up to school with all of these interests and things that they enjoy doing and possible like ideas of what might be in store for them. Uh, having the learning in a school be the bridge to that and who they can become rather than like something that's going to be like, no, you should be a lawyer because that's, what's going to be like, what's expected of you, you know, like, Allowing a student to take part in the conversation of their life, I think, is um, what's particularly important. And so a lot of the research is is about like specific examples or takeaways for how um, students can start to expand the realm of possibility for for their lives, like how certain mentors, you know, students of color um, who have come from similar neighborhoods can help students see themselves in a new light because they can relate to these mentors or how a teacher who recognized um, a young person's um, interest in rap music, uh, a kid who wasn't doing any of his homework, how that was able to be a bridge for him to become interested in finance. Um, Just, you know, that just opening up the world of possibility, I think is what's at stake. Is it fair to say, and this is, I, just to be clear, this isn't a characterization of Dr. Um, Duckworth's uh, um, interpretation of grit, but in, 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 a, in the most reductionist sense, is it safe to say that proponents of a very narrow view of grit would say, the school teaches what it teaches, you put your nose down, you learn it because, but you learn it by convincing yourself that it's hard work every day and that the outcome that you want will come at the end. And that agency's contribution to that is that this should be more of a conversation about getting the, um, what's the best pedagogical pulse of a student um, and finding a way to align curriculum in a way that meets them where they are. Yeah, I I can't really say that that's off the mark by too much. 
the recipe for grit is like talent and hard work is, is the achievement. And so it doesn't really have that textural nuance of thinking about who the person is, the class or setting that they're in um, and what, how their interests change over time. Um, And so I think that, that all of those are kind of aligned to this like critical thinking element that we really want our students to develop that I think the agency puts back into the conversation, like the, the Frarian idea that like education can be for liberation um, and not just to assimilate you, I think is, is the agency piece, which what I will say is that that's just a part of, that's just the conversation that grit hasn't been a part of, right. uh, which has been like what my work has been trying to do and, and being a psychological concept I guess it doesn't have to, like, that's not what the psychology is, it was even aiming to do, but because of its implications in education and like our societal thirst for things like grit and applying them into, you know, charter school vision boards and stuff like that. That's why it really kind of took on this life of its own, which is what got me interested in uh, nuancing it a little bit. I wonder, um, and this is a little bit outside of the, the sort of topic of the conversation, but as I've been sort of revisiting your your work um, and thinking about it, I do wonder: Have you had any conversations about how your work is um, informative for students with learning differences, um, and how? Uh, because um, listeners of the podcast will know that I have um, a son who's on the spectrum, and so we're constantly looking for ways um, to engage you know, yeah. uh, him and his interest, it's a little bit more challenging for, for kids that aren't as expressive sometimes. And so I wonder, is that something that's crossed your, your, your work already or conversations that you've had? Yeah. Uh, where I'll start is by saying that, um, I think my work has, has been more about learning as a process than about schooling as an institution. Sure. Um, the, you know, the, the, Pre, the prelude stuff to my work is that schools are very rigid. They're not able to necessarily influence their communities as much as the communities influence the school. And for poorer communities, that that has a lot of uh, negative implications. For me, it's always been about what are the workarounds, right? Like I have the rows and the concrete metaphor that kind of carries through my book. And it's like, right. how do the individual rows come out of the concrete? And we know the concrete is rigid and it's tough and it's structural. And a lot of times it's invisible with the hope of learning from this rose of success to create more fertilizer and ideally get rid of the concrete totally. So what I would say is that because sometimes schools are a little bit more rigid and often have to just reflect societal needs. A lot of the participants of my research have really taken learning into their own hands despite schooling. It's like, you know, that Mark Twain quote, I never let schooling get in the way of my education. And so I'm thinking about a few of my participants in particular, but like one of them would be Malcolm, who who I write about. Um, And um, he dropped out of high school. He had had a mother struggling with bipolar disorder and an absentee father. Um, And he had a, a bunch of mental health um, challenges growing up, um, just in a very unstable home. And he was homeless and, um, kind of sleeping in parks and taking bird baths at, at park bathrooms and, and, uh, working a shift as a doorman at New York at night. Um, but one of the most things that sticks out most to me from his story is that he didn't care about education or learning until he actually picked up the autobiography of Malcolm X and started reading it for himself and wasn't able to put it down. And, you know, it's not a, not a light text, but it was just reading that and seeing all the various connections between Malcolm X's life and his own, and then being able to, um, I think he says, like, see the street signs, see names like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X Boulevard, and actually knowing why those people are on the street signs rather than just, you know, walking by them all the time and not knowing the significance that they had. So that's like one story about like how educational materials, if they can kind of touch your soul or your heart, they can really, you can find the relevance of what you're learning. And that's, that's the sad thing is like a lot of times schools aren't able to teach or create pedagogy that can do that. But the ones that can, or, you know, the ones where are that incredibly, incredibly vibrant learning um, is happening. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, that the, the idea, the intersections of like organic intellectuals and, and 
passion and finding passion for what you're, you know, um, what you're going to do. It's for school structurally, it's such a balance. And I, and I, and I, I, again, I think about a little bit about my son, who's just obviously geared towards storytelling and, you know, filmmaking. And that's, that's where his, his head is. And so we're always looking for contact points to sort of pull him into those other things as well, you know, but at right. the same time is inspiring the work that, that he does, you know. That's great. And it's wonderful to have, uh, you know, the luxury of uh, and supportive parents who are looking to, to, you know, water those interests and in a way that schools often can't. So when schools can be supplemented by parents or other mentors or other enrichment programs, that's when like, you're really touching the whole parts of a kid's live lives. And, uh, the other thing I would say is that schools also, it's so weird that like so much is predicated on age, you know, we're like grouped together by age and we're supposed to supposedly learn in similar ways, 20 students in a classroom, one teacher with a teaching style and different learning styles. Like that part, like that's like what Ken Robinson said, like that doesn't make much sense. Like it's kind of a factory model. And so the other thing that I would say in my work has really, um, kind of wanted to do, I wanted to do through my work is expand on the notion of success and achievement in general, that they don't have to look a certain way that you can go to college when you're 24 or 25, and you'll still have your whole life ahead of you. Or when you're 40, like one of my participants who is a, a chauffeur, he went back to college because his son told him, I want to be just like you. And he was like, no, no, you don't. I'm going to go to college if that's the case. And, and he did. And wow. um, wonderful stories. And so it's like, everyone's journey with learning and education can look different and we should um, find ways to, to reward them in their own right. Um, and that's a broader societal conversation about like, well, what comes at the end of that? Um, and that's, you know, that's why it's like schools can't do it alone. Right. And it's, um, I mean, there's like, there are a million, I have a million questions and I'm not going to keep you because I know that you've got sure. things to do. And we could stay um, a little bit longer though. I mean, it's, so it's, free. yeah, it's so it's, I'm, I'm really enjoying the the conversation, but um, what, what occurred to me while you were speaking is that since the pandemic, there's been a lot of conversation about parental involvement in schools and, and some of it is critical. Some of it is what this did was open the door for parents to have, deep discussions about, you know, what you're teaching and how you're teaching and for the academic community, especially in, in like secondary education at large, that can be a little bit uncomfortable because it's not a level of scrutiny that has always uh, existed. But the flip side of that coin is um, your work tells us that when, when that's done with mutual respect and, and the same goal in mind, which is, you know, to create students with agency who are joyful learners and lifelong learners, that involvement's not just good, it's a prerequisite, right. um, you know, and, and in cases where it's not available, like so many of the young people that you talk about in your book, that it leaves a gap that that's very, very difficult to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that it's interesting because I do think that in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months, people have really sort of looked, um, you know, scans at the idea of how much parents are involved in school, but um, it's certainly better than the alternative. Yeah, it, it's crazy, right? Like, the, especially because the pandemic has come in waves. I think the first mm-hmm. wave, parents were excited a little bit to be at home, got doing that guiding. And now parents are, I just saw like a meme about like how parents are just doing that, but they're dead inside. <laughs> and what, what that does for me is like remind us about the importance of school as an institution. Like that's where you're sending your kids to get taken care of. And so the first thing I would say coming back to that is that we have to professionalize teaching and pay our teachers more because there's so much more than teachers. And it's cool that parents got to be reminded of that. Um, And then the other thing that that makes me think of is just like when in times of challenge and, and social unrest, like the pandemic has kind of brought, like it's also, we have to think about which parents have, which parents and students have the luxury of getting together in remote settings because, you know, the pandemic has just disproportionately rocked lower income communities because how are those parents going to find childcare if school is remote, but they're an essential worker. And so like, what's been kind of scary is that there's been um, a lot of data coming out about this from McKinsey and other places is that the learning loss from COVID Mm -hmm. has just been 
catastrophic. And so that's when, when I have to try to make the case for my work, like that's kind of one of the things I would point to um, is that we don't really know what the implications of that will be f- until maybe right. five or 10 years from now, because we're already just trying to put duct tape on this dam to hold the water back. Um, so it, it's like the learning loss isn't as crazy for the the students who have parents who can kind of support the learning on the side or like right. enrich it in other ways. And so I just hope it's not creating more, you know, disproportionate inequality in terms of learning. Well, it, there, I mean, it seems almost independent schools, private schools, obviously had a, a much easier time adjusting as well. I mean, set aside the sort of um, the question of just money and the, the yeah. ability to technologically be able to retrofit yourself to be in school. There's also a simple matter of just numbers in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, if your average classroom size pre-pandemic was 15 students, then you could probably open your doors a lot faster because you could meet CDC guidelines without, you know, upsetting the apple cart. Whereas right. if your average class size was 36 students, it's a entirely different ball game. And so Definitely. of course there are, there are implications, um, that, and they're going to be, I mean, I'm, the research will, will, will ultimately tell us, but it seems like intuitively that it will broaden the gap in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I do think as we, as we, I mean, I am endlessly optimistic, which is not, um, which is a trait that I took on much, much later in life. So don't be surprised if others tell you that that's not the case, but um, my optimism is that, um, that after there's a bit of dust settling, there we may find that parents and teachers uh, have an elevated sense of respect for what one another are doing for children. Right. And yeah. I feel like there had been some times where in, in our past where the not that the the absence of respect, but it just became you dropped your kid off in the circle and they were there for eight hours and you picked them up. And I think everyone has a greater sense of what everyone else's role in this is. And I'm hopeful that that's informative post pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the kind of education that I think it would be an ideal form is when there are less silos and less barriers and mm-hmm. um, parent parents aren't just getting phone calls because their kid did something wrong, but right. maybe there was a good reason to call home that day. Um, and so, yeah, those relationships are integral and communities that can build those relationships genuinely are just creating stronger educated students as an obvious byproduct. Well, listen, Dr. Kundu, I am so grateful that you took the time to talk to us this morning. This has been an absolute pleasure. I, I, I mentioned when we started that this was the earliest we've ever recorded one of these, <laughs> but I'm, you know, it's definitely set the tone for my day um, in, a, in a very positive light. And I'm well, really, really excited that we're going to be able to welcome you here um, at the Meadow School. We look forward to your visit. I look forward to more conversations like this. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your thank time. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Carter Carver, for having me. It, it's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to getting to meet you in person and uh, meet your uh, vibrant community and colleagues as well. And so I'm uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation in March. That was a great conversation. I'd like to thank Dr. Anindya Kandu for joining us. We look forward to welcoming him to campus March 15th to speak with our faculty and with faculty from schools in the area. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a review, a rating, subscribe. That does it for us. We'll see you next time at The Meadow.